And so, uh, everyone, welcome. It's good to be here. Uh, my name is Pastor Jordan McClellan, as she mentioned. And uh, I'm just looking forward to getting back into this series that we've called Reno Time. Um, Reno Time is when we start to look at the foundations of our lives. And so today, we're going to continue in this series where we look at the foundations of our lives and we examine what is it have we built on. You see, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus challenges those who would follow him to carefully, carefully sorry, observe their lives and what they're building it upon. Now, there's two ways that we can build, Jesus said. We can build our foundation on the rock, or we can build our foundation on sand. And those who build their foundation on the rock, it, it seems to endure. It's strong. The rains and the winds and the storms come. But that, the house stands. The foundation is strong. It's what you need to build on. But those who build the house on sand, Jesus says, built on a weak foundation. And when the, the rains come, when the storms come, when really just the chaos of life comes, it, it, it just, as you see in the picture, it just kind of falls apart. And it doesn't endure. And so what did Jesus say was like building your house on the rock? He said, building your house on the rock is the person who hears his words and his teachings and puts them into action and who believes them. And in, ret in, in reverse, the opposite way, building your house on sand would be to hear them, but not necessarily to take them serious and not necessarily to put them in action. And so we really... I really think this is an appropriate series where we just look at the foundation of our lives, we look at what we've built on, we begin to examine have we built on the foundation that Jesus asked us to build on, or have we perhaps maybe bought into our culture a little too much, and maybe built on some of the foundations that culture would teach, and maybe not necessarily the gospel. And so today we're going to look at the topic of generosity. Everyone loves it when we talk about money in church. Amen? Okay, I heard some laughs and a couple amen, so we're good here. But uh, we're talking about generosity. Love it, Paul. And uh, what it means to live a generous life as a Christian. And so I don't think it's a stretch for me to suggest at the beginning of this talk that Christians ought to be known as generous people. Christians ought to be known for their generosity. Generosity is something that has such a beauty to it, and it can make people really take notice of it when it happens, right? You know, I think about this pandemic time that we've walked through, and we just see all sorts of generous things happening during this time. We see people um, helping others with groceries, um, maybe doing tasks around people's houses, shoveling snow, giving to other people, being generous with our time and, and our treasures and our talents, the things we have. I remember hearing stories in Winnipeg. Uh, I remember reading one about a Starbucks line that started one morning in a Starbucks drive-through. And it went some 200 cars deep as person after person just went to the front to pay and said, okay, I'm going to get the person behind me's bill. And we hear these kinds of stories, and they kind of, they feel kind of nice, don't they? Right? 
I was Googling, you know, Tim Horton stories like this, because I've heard Tim Horton's uh, stories of this happening. And I'm not going to lie to you, I think I Googled Tim Horton, Saskatoon, something, and I got this story of somebody throwing a snake at a barista, and I was like, you know what, that is not what I'm looking for here, that's not exactly the illustration I need for tonight, but let's look for something more loving. And I think we take notice of these kind of stories, don't we, when we see them in the media. I think watching the news would be a more enjoyable experience if we didn't just hear about every bad thing that happened in the city, but we started to hear about the generous things that happened, amen? And so, with that in mind, I think there's just something about generosity that attracts us to this kind of thing, to this kind of living. There's something beautiful about it. I think in some ways, when we hear generous stories, we think to ourselves, well, that's the way things were meant to be. That's how things are supposed to be. People are supposed to look out for each other. People are supposed to care for one another. People are supposed to give to look after each other's needs. And we hear stories like this, and I think they, they immediately grab our attention because they just feel so right. And so tonight we're going to talk about generosity. But before we get into it too much, let's look at what the scriptures tell us about the source of generosity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, we read this. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And so if we ever want to question the source of things in our life, where we accumulate, where we get our stuff, we can look towards God as our provider. Amen? In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says it like this. It says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And so, if you ever want to look to the source and give thanks to the one who blesses and truly provides for you, you only need to look up to God and say thank you. You only need to look to him, I believe. I believe that's what Scripture tells us. I believe that's what Scripture teaches us. I believe that's what Scripture will point us to. And so when we talk about money, here's something I think that's very important that we have to keep in mind. We have to keep in mind that God isn't just concerned about what we do with money. Okay? But He's actually very concerned about our heart's condition when it comes to money. It's not just what we do with our money that matters, but it's where is our heart at concerning money and possessions and things. In Matthew chapter 23, and verse 23, Jesus was calling out the religious leaders for doing a lot of good things but missing the point behind it all. And here's what he says. He says to them, Woe to you, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And so notice when Jesus talks to them that he actually affirms the gift that they gave. You've done well by giving your tenth. You see, this comes from a, a scripture in the book of Malachi, in chapter 3, if you want to look it up sometime, where it talks about the tenth, in, which is literally translated in our culture as tithe. And Jesus actually commends them for doing this. He says, you, you did a good thing by doing this, but in the process, they've missed something. 
And Jesus insists on focusing on their heart condition and on what he calls the greater matters of the law. And so I'm going to say this tonight. Jesus cares so much about the why behind our actions. Why we do something seems to say something about the condition of my heart. Sometimes answering the why question is more important than the what. And so, why? What is the motivation behind the instructions of Scripture to give and to be good stewards with all that God's given to us? You see, there are certain things that giving is not. In Matthew chapter 6, it's not on the screen, but Jesus, you know, says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness in front of people, right? Be careful not to go around giving and flaunting so that people can see how holy and spiritual you are. If that's your motivation, then your reward's going to be very small. But he says when you give, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. But give it unto God as, a, as, as just an act of worship. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and seven, verse 7 to 8, we read it like this. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And so another thing we don't do in giving is that giving isn't supposed to be done with reluctance. And so with that in mind, I'm going to move into our text tonight that I think is going to help us hopefully get some clarity on the motivations behind why Jesus asked us to give. So 2 Corinthians Chapter 8, if you've got your Bibles, your phones at home, open it up. It's on the screen as well. Let's read through this. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's addressing something that he talked to them about before. And he says this, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a, a, a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love that we have kindled in you, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty might become rich. And so let me give you a little background on what's happening here when Paul writes to this church, because it's helpful for us to understand why he's doing what he's doing. You see, persecution had broken out in the church of Jerusalem after Stephen was killed. Stephen was the first Christian to be put to death for his faith. And persecution broke out. And things weren't looking good. And oddly enough, rather than causing the gospel message to slow down or, and, and, and people to be afraid and maybe take a step back from talking about Jesus, 
what happens is that the message actually continues to spread in ways that it never spread before. It starts spreading rapidly, if you will. You see, the nature of the gospel message is that it always wants to spread. It goes on. It is meant to go on to other people, regardless of whatever heritage or family or tribe or custom that tries to keep it to themselves and perhaps say, this is our message, this is our thing. This is not simply a message for our people, but the gospel is a message for all people. And it's natural thing it does is it spreads to people. The very nature of the message is that it transcends any cultural barriers and it reaches out to those who are different and it continues to spread rapidly. And so Paul, when he was writing to the church in Corinth in chapter 16 of, of, of 1 Corinthians, he tells them about this collection he's going to be taken up for the church of Jerusalem. And they'd agreed to be a part of it. And apparently, the Macedonian church was skipped over in the collection. And they weren't even asked to give because they didn't have any money. And so they were skipped. They couldn't write a check. And, and I think Paul and the leadership were, were, were quite convinced of this. And so they didn't even bother guilting them about it. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians who had committed to the offering to the collection, who said they would take part in it. But as of the writing of this letter, they haven't actually collected or given any of the money. Which never happens in our world, right? So Paul writes them, knowing he's going to be coming through Corinth, and he talks about the Macedonian church. And he says, this church, in the midst of their extreme trial and poverty, they welled up in rich generosity. Paul writes entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us with their desire to share in this, this, this collection, this service to the Lord's people. And why does Paul say that they urgently pleaded with us? Well, he says that because they left them out. They had purposely skipped them. They didn't even ask them to participate in the offering because they didn't want to be a burden to them. They knew what they were going through, and they, they decide, you know what, we're just not going to be a burden to them. We're not going to ask them. And the Macedonians, rather than just accepting that, were kind of like, wait a minute, we want to be a part of this collection too. It's almost as if they would contact Paul and say to him, what are we poor? And the Apostle Paul in that moment with integrity could have said, yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly why we didn't want to burden you and make you feel bad when it came to this collection we were taking up. And yet for these persecuted and impoverished Christians, there was something within them that despite their circumstances, they wanted in. They wanted to be a part of this. And they were going to be a part of the work of the gospel in Jerusalem, and they were not going to be denied this right. And so Paul is writing to Corinth here. And it's as if he's saying to them, I'm just saying, if, you know, if I come to Corinth and you have nothing collected... And I go through poor Macedonia, and they got money collected. And this is going to be awkward. This is actually going to get quite awkward. And so if you're the Apostle Paul, you're in some sort of tricky kind of relational waters here in how you're going to approach the, the church in Corinth to, to really do what they said they were going to do and give to this collection. And so how do you let the Corinthians know that if I show up to the poor Macedonians and they have money, 
and you who have lots of money, if I come to you and you don't have any money collected for this, then that's not going to be something that's going to look good, that's going to be awkward, that's going to be strange. And so how does Paul tell them, you have a couple of days to get your act together, those are my words, or it's going to be quite awkward. What does he do? He simply writes, I want to tell you a story. And how does he frame it? He frames it around the grace of God that has been given to the Macedonian church. He's not saying that these Macedonians are making you look bad. He's not saying you guys look like chumps compared to them. He's not coming at them with this in this moment. He's not saying that they're totally showing you up. No, but I want to tell you a story, he says, about the grace that God has shown them. And these Macedonians, during poverty, were not only able to get money together, but they're also sending people to take the money to Jerusalem, which is a really long distance if you look at it on the map. Which raises the question, have the people in Macedonia even met the people in Jerusalem? And the answer to that question is likely no, because it was such a long distance. The church in Macedonia had never even met these people on the other side of the world from them, and yet they desperately wanted to give money to them. This is church. This is how the church operates. Are you with me? And from the beginning, it was basic practice in the church that you would give. To give to people around you, to even give to people you haven't met. Generosity was built into the basic DNA of the church as we read about in the book of Acts early on. And so when Paul describes it, he doesn't say that the Macedonians have a lot of disposable income laying around. No. He calls their desire to give to people they've never met. What does he call it? He calls it grace. He talks about the grace that they've been shown. You see, God has shown these people grace, and they've experienced it, and it deeply affects how they think about themselves and about people around them. This grace that they've experienced deeply affected how they saw themselves and how they saw other people. Think about it this way. Maybe you've accepted Jesus Christ as a, as a kid or as a teenager or as a young adult like me or as an adult. And you've accepted Jesus, and that's amazing. And you've accepted his grace in that moment. When you come to know him, you were given the gift of grace. But guess what? You are not done at that moment, okay? There is still joy to be experienced. You see, grace is never simply a one-time transaction. And if you want the joy of Christ, then you and I need to accept and receive that grace every single day when we wake up. Just like we would wake up most days, and every day we eat food and we get full, but every day we must eat again in order to fill up. In the same way, we must not look to his grace as just a one-time thing in our lives, but we recognize it every single day. It's not just something we look at at Easter. It's not just something we look at at Good Friday. It's not just something we look at at Christmas, but every single day we recognize that grace is a beautiful thing. Amen? You see, one of the reasons we often don't experience joy is because maybe we have bad habits of not receiving his grace daily and not being conscious of the gift that God has given to us. Think about it like this. We've all been given gifts to an extent. 
most people, most people, have been given eyes so we can see, or muscles so that we can lift, or the ability to appreciate things. And eventually, as you age, your eyesight might deteriorate. I'm wearing glasses. Your muscles may weaken, but your ability to appreciate things will stick with you always for the most part. And we're so good at appreciating and having the ability to, to appreciate. We know how to do this, but it's what we appreciate that can sometimes trip us up. It's what we find ourselves appreciating that can sometimes trip us up. You see, because we often appreciate what we don't have, don't we? We often find ourselves appreciating things we don't have. You know, think about it. You know, that awesome car that the neighbor drives. You just see it pull up and you're like, wow, wouldn't that be something to own that? Or that great house of theirs. Or those really well-behaved kids who don't open their door every two minutes after you put them to sleep. I'm venting, okay? Or that job that he or she has that's just so amazing. They seem so fulfilled in that. Those things that we wish we had, we can appreciate that. No one had to teach us to do that. How, how we can appreciate those things. We're pretty good at it. It actually kind of comes natural to us. You see, sometimes we appreciated what we once had. I've heard people say often to appreciate it while it lasts when speaking of young children who are now adults because the time flies. Anyone ever said that before? Right? Appreciate it. The time flies. And so adults whose children have grown up will urge you to appreciate and soak in those young years with your kids, and that's good advice. But yet the flip side to that is that many who are presently dealing with younger kids can sometimes feel exhausted quite often. You know, the young child who never wants to let you sleep, I won't say anymore. Many maybe don't appreciate that as much in the moment as the person with adult children can. And so we're really good at appreciating what we once had, and we're really good at appreciating what we hope to have in the future. And the grass is always greener on the other side, some would say. But what about appreciating and living in gratitude of what we have right now? Are we good at appreciating what we have today? And it'd be awesome if we can appreciate all the stuff we have today, but even greater, what if we could in this moment always be mindful and appreciative of the grace and love that Jesus has shown us, that Jesus has given to us? You see, if we've filled up on that and tasted of his grace daily, how would that change things for you? How would that change things for me? And what if Jesus was willing to help us with that? You see, I read this portion of scripture in 2 Corinthians, and it reminds me of this. It's, it reminds us to cherish the grace that God has given to you. These people were given grace, and they were conscious of it. And that's why the Apostle Paul talks about it right away. Out of their extreme poverty, he said, they welled up in rich generosity. These incredibly poor people had this explosion of generosity welled up within them. Maybe you can say it like this. You can have barely any money or possessions and actually in your heart be quite rich. 
and you can have lots of money and lots of stuff and really be quite poor. You can have barely any money and yet your spirit can be so bursting and so wide and so generous that you are in some strange way phenomenally rich in your heart. Your very being is loaded with the wealth of God. You give, and it has little to do with actual dollars. But you give, and you bless others, and you give to the work of God, and it's generosity that beams within you, and it's based on the very same generosity that God has given you. And we call it grace. You see, in 2 Corinthians 8, 7, it tells us to excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, complete earnestness, in the love we've kindled in you. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. You see, perhaps we can say it like this when we think about giving. Our finances, we won't let our finances determine our joy. What the Macedonians teach the church in Corinth and the church in general is they teach us is that there's a joy that is independent of life's circumstances. There's also a joy that is dependent on life's circumstances. For some, there seems to be a joy that may rise and fall with the stock market or the price of something. But for those who have tasted the grace of God, there's a joy that's independent of all of that. And for these Macedonian believers, it's a determination that our poverty is not going to be a barrier to our joy. And so Paul's writing the church in Corinth here. And he's like, I'm coming, and you still haven't given what you said you were going to. Let me tell you about the grace that was given to the Macedonian church. The grace that makes even poor people rich. Now notice what Paul doesn't do, and I love this, and I think I need to say something about this, because sometimes giving messages can be so heavy-handed at you, right? Notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't drop the law on them, okay? Does Paul guilt them? No, doesn't do that. Does he lecture them with, you know, I see how much, you know, money you have in your congregation, and you guys have such closed fists, and is Paul bringing guilt to them? No, doesn't do that. Does Paul bring shame down them? Is he trying to shame them here? No. How about authority? You know, does he come to them and say, I'm the Apostle Paul, and I'm the reason you have a church. I told you about Jesus, right? So I'm telling you, Jerusalem needs money. Get it together now. Does, does, does Paul say that to them? No. Doesn't do that either. And does he do comparisons? Does he say the Macedonians, well, you know, I think God loves them way more than he loves you guys because of how they're behaving there? Why can't you be more like them? No, Paul doesn't do anything like that. And why? Because Paul only knows gospel grace, given in free will. Paul only knows about cheerful giving, if you will, done with great joy. This is a prime example of where the Apostle Paul has a lot of hammers in his toolbox that he could bring down on them if he wanted to. This is a prime example where he could say, do it because you're supposed to, or do it because God commands it. And the people might respond in that moment, okay, fine, I'll do it, right? Mainly because they're afraid, or they're coerced, or they feel guilted into it. But no, at this prime moment, he doesn't resort to any of that, but he simply trusts that the Spirit of God can grab a hold of each heart and do the work in the heart that brings joy 
And he won't get in the way of that. Because he knows that the grace of God in our lives can do far more than anything he could say to try to make this happen. And he knows that the Holy Spirit within can lead us, can direct us, and he trusts God's work in our lives. And so in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, he says it like this. He says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And he, God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all you need, you can abound in every good work. And so some ask, why doesn't Paul just set them straight and lay the hammer down? And it seems that, that that's not what the Apostle Paul was interested in doing. Because the Apostle Paul was most interested in the transformation of the human heart. And if at any moment we may try to use coercion or manipulation, then I think we violated the natural, beautiful thing that the Spirit of God wants to do in the hearts of people. And we can fake it, but it wouldn't be real. We can simply follow orders from the top, and many of us do that. But if we did, we'll never know if it had taken root in our hearts, but we'd simply be following orders. And that's the thing that you'll find again and again with the gospel, is that God is not simply concerned with our actions, but he wants to change our hearts. It's not simply getting people to do the right things, but it's so that our hearts would be so transformed that we couldn't even imagine doing anything but the right things. It happens because of the work that he's done in our life and in our hearts. And all the ways the Apostle Paul could have resorted to try to get this money. Could have did all sorts of things to get them to give this money, but what does he do? He just says, oh, by the way, let me tell you a beautiful story, Corinthians about the grace that has been given to your Macedonian brothers and sisters. They are poor, but something has happened in their hearts. Something's happened in their bank accounts. Something's happened with their time and their desires, and it's beautiful. And he doesn't resort to any of the things he could, but he wants them to experience grace and joy that only comes when the Holy Spirit does a tremendous work in their lives. Are you with me? And so church, I think God wants us personally to experience the same. In 2 Corinthians 8, 3, For I testified they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They gave beyond their ability. They gave what they could, but even beyond. This tells me that you and I are capable of way more than we realize. That's what Paul's saying about them. These people, these people were capable of more than they even realized. You see, there's a popular thing, I think, sometimes that's been around in the church culture that's to try to get people to do things by making them feel terrible about themselves. Anyone ever experienced this, this kind of teaching and thinking before? You know, there's podcasts, books, radio shows, TV programs, all kind of based upon this, this principle. Essentially saying that the essential way people are won over to the love of God is to make people feel terrible. If they just feel bad enough, then they'll realize how awesome Jesus is. Which is ridiculous when you think about it, right? I know very few people who can just, you know, have a massive lecture and f made to feel this big and to be mocked and to be ridiculed and to be shamed and to be guilted and to feel terrible of themselves, who all of a sudden get this realization one day, wow, I want to be like Christians, right? 
wow, I want to just, to just know God. God's so good. I feel so great right now. Anyone ever experienced that kind of teaching before or that kind of coercion? You see, what's fascinating in the Bible is that you have story after story after story of uniquely broken and sinful people who find out just what they're capable of through the power of God. That by His grace on their lives and the Holy Spirit's leading, they're, great, they're, they're capable of extraordinary things. And that's what this story is about. Paul goes, those Macedonians, let me tell you, unbelievable what they've done here. And so this tells me that you and I also are capable of extraordinary generosity. You see, the reason I love this passage is because the Apostle Paul's so gentle in his approach. The one thing he's clear on is that they didn't have any cash. And so all of us who are like, yeah, you know, that's a great idea for people who are millionaires. You see, the one thing Paul says is that these people were poor, persecuted, in poverty, and yet he said they were still capable of stunning generosity in God's eyes. And he didn't frame it around guilt. And he didn't frame it around condemnation or shame. But he frames the principle around something that all of us as believers have experienced. And that's the grace of God. And that's the goodness of God to you and the goodness of God to me. And this is why Jesus always talks about this. You know, when someone gives the little that they have, he sees the heart. He sees what's happening. Giving should be a joy, friends, not a burden. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that if you're, if you're not always skipping and singing joyful songs to the offering plate, that it's always bad, okay? Remember, we don't simply, you know, do things simply on emotion. Sometimes sacrifice at first can feel difficult. I remember when I first started giving as a young believer. It was noticeable. <laughs> and at first, a little difficult to part with what I thought was mine. But with time, that shifted, my thinking shifted as I got to know Jesus more and as God continued to speak to my heart. And when you get away from it and really look at things in the perspective of the grace that you receive each day, there's a joy that happens in knowing that you're giving this something that's going to impact, help, and transform so many. You become a part of God's work here on earth. And the last thing I'm going to say to us tonight on this is that we must recognize that giving is truly at the heart of the gospel. Think about how John says it in one of the most famous scriptures that most of us can quote. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, in the nature and heart of God is a heart to give, rich generosity, so much so that he didn't even spare his own son, but he thought of me and he thought of you. He thought of us. He thought of our benefit. And at the heart of the gospel message and story is giving. God sending his son coming down to us in the form of man and freeing us from, from sin by his death on the cross, giving us freedom and salvation in him. And so when we look to the cross, we acknowledge the extraordinary generosity of God. That at the heart of our Christian worldview is this idea that God has been extremely generous with us. You see, everything begins with that, prime, that fundamental primal act of generosity on God's behalf. Jesus lived, he taught, he was crucified, he, was, he resurrected. The sacrifice of Jesus reminds us of God's generosity to us. 
You see, emotions that we find ourselves sometimes in, bitterness, anger, jealousy, despair, these often come when we live with a sense of entitlement, with this idea that we've been shafted or forgotten or shortchanged or left out. But at the center of the gospel message, friends, is a reminder that we are recipients of extraordinary generosity. You don't have much money? Well, that's okay. God's still generous. We're still recipients of an extraordinary gift. If we can discover that and awake to it, I think it changes everything for us. It changes everything for us. And it takes us from having to serve God to wanting to serve God. I used to read an author by the name of Donald Miller uh, when I was in college. And he, he used to always say that the gospel is more like marriage and less like a formula. And I remember thinking that through thinking, well, how is that true? And here's one of the ways I think that's true. How many of you would want to be in a relationship with somebody who just constantly is bickering and upset, and they're like, oh, I have to do this for this person? Anyone want to be in that relationship? I have to clean the dishes. Oh, terrible. I have to cook supper. I have to pick you up. I have to mow the, mow, mow the yard. How many of you think a relationship with a person like that would get exhausting? No one look over your shoulder, okay? Just kidding. But it would get exhausting, and that's not how I think God wants us to serve him. That's not how any of us should see our relationship with him. You see, I'll use my wife, for example. Often the reason why I do things like that, why I, why I um, do the dishes, why I clean the house, why I, I shovel snow, why I, 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 I mow the lawn, and those are just minor things. I don't do them because I have to do them. I do them because I love her. And love changes everything. And it changes our motivations, and it changes our hearts. It takes us from having to do something to wanting to do something. And this is why I believe the grace of God affecting our hearts is the, one of the most important things we can have happen as Christians. Because it takes us from duty to delight. So does anyone here today need to be reminded of God's grace? of God's love? Is there anyone here who's bought into that idea that you're not capable of much? Worship team can come forward. Today I believe God wants to awaken us and speak to each of us of the super, over-the-top, amazing generosity that is lavished on each of our hearts by the grace of God. Amen? For the receiving and for the giving. And so next week is Generosity Weekend here at the Neighborhood Church, which is something we do every year. And my prayer is that as you consider this week how you can give a little extra to the work and ministry of, of the church, which reaches out to Saskatoon, Martinsville, our province, and around the world, my prayer is that you would look to the grace that God has shown you. The grace and love of Jesus, that that would be what would primarily influence you and in how you give. As we recognize his goodness to us, may that be what leads us in our giving. Amen? I think this is just a daily... I, I thought about this this past week. What an, how different would your life be if you woke up every single morning and the first thing you sat and thought about and read a scripture about was about God's grace to you? 
I think it would change the way we see things. I think it would change the way we behave. I think it would take our motivations and our actions to something pure. And so as we look to Jesus, we focus on and celebrate what he's given us, given to us and given for us. May we also ponder in our hearts how we can give back to him and give to the furthering of his kingdom work even now. And so worship team can come forward, but maybe reflecting on the grace of God, maybe that can take us from burden to joy, from dreading to joyfully giving, from law to freedom, from religion to relationship, for his grace has and is continually changing us, even today, even tomorrow. And so may we live as generous people, church, because he has indeed been generous to us. Amen? So I'm going to invite everyone just to stand. And the worship team's going to lead us in song. And I just want you just to take, take whatever God is speaking to you tonight through this. But my prayer is that each one of us would, uh, would just receive his grace afresh tonight. That it would encourage us, it would motivate us in how we live for him but that it would also speak to us in areas such as what we're talking about tonight, such as generosity. How can we be generous with our time, with our talents, and with our treasures? Allow God to speak to you as you worship.